The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. Good morning, guys. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Nehemiah. Let me just uh, encourage you to turn there as we go to our Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you are here to speak to us through your scriptures. Uh, We are looking at historical events that happened thousands of years ago, but give us an example uh, to follow. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see clearly this story in light of the whole story that you are writing, in light of the whole story captured in all of the Bible. Open up our hearts. Teach us, dear Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, Let's go ahead and just dive into Nehemiah chapter 4. And I'm going to just read the passage for us, and uh, then we'll dive in. Again, as I just prayed, my hope is that what's going on with us is that while we're looking at the book of Nehemiah, that uh, we could see from it a lot of great things like leadership principles, the importance of delegation, the importance uh, of being wise under pressure. But there's so much more going on here And from chapter 4, I really want to help us capture two main principles uh, in light of all of Scripture and not just the story. Uh, Nehemiah is not just a standalone story. It's a part of the grand narrative um, written in all of Scripture and and in God's story unfolding in all of history because history is ultimately his story. So let's dive in. We'll pick up where we left off last week, starting in chapter 4. I'm just going to read the whole chapter, so follow along. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, uh, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah And the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop their work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and I saw the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on, on, on the construction and half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side when he built. The men who surrounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separate, separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally us to there, for our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that there may be a guard for us by night, and that we may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So there's a lot we could pull from that scripture, and today our time is not enough to pull out everything, but there are two key things that I want all of us to hear, and I want us to, instead of digging for the specific leadership principles and how how uh, Nehemiah was able to <clears throat> stand against the opposition from outside the walls and, and calm the fears of those within the walls. Ultimately, I believe there are two principles that we need to grab from this passage. The first one being that there is a, a beautiful and unique relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Throughout all the scriptures, we see this, this unique unfolding of, of, of God having a plan and, and man being called to certain steps and actions. You see in verse 9, out of faith, they said, we prayed to God. They knew this persecution, this attack might be coming. So they prayed to God about it. And at the same time, we prayed to God and we posted a guard. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and, and through many stories in scripture, we see this, this unique unfolding. One of those is from Isaiah chapter 38. You see, we have King Hezekiah, and he is, 
he, he's getting, he's, he's sick, he's, he's dying, and he's calling out to God, God, spare my life, please, please save me. And God speaks to him through the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah comes to King Hezekiah and says, you know, God has heard your prayer, and he's going to extend your life 15 years. And so we have God's sovereign plan being spoken, and, and so be it. And the very next word said, so Isaiah orders these figs, this, this medicine paste to be made. Now apply this to King Hezekiah's boils so that he will be healed. So we've got this, this, this command from God, you're going to be healed. And yet we've got the action of man. Let's apply this medicine. Um, yesterday, I was at the hospital Jaylene Bermia, uh, many of you were praying with us, and, and we are very grateful for it. Um, there's been prayers going on for several months. Um, for those of you who know, it, it was discovered uh, like seven years ago that she had a brain tumor. And steps were taken, uh, but the tumor continued to grow. And so yesterday, the step was to go in and remove the tumor. Now, we have been praying for Jaylene, believing that our God could heal and, and, and would heal. At the same time, the doctors and the specialists did everything they could. They, they, they got one of the world's leading instruments from Denver brought in just for this procedure. Uh, Joe Biden's own specialists were a part of this team uh, working on... Jaylene Vermea. And so while we're praying and trusting in God and asking for him to have his sovereign will unfold, we are also looking to men and humankind to be responsible and do the best they can at going in. One of the most beautiful things about yesterday is that uh, the surgeon, the lead surgeon came in and he gave us an update and he actually told us before the surgery that what he had saw was not necessarily good news that the tumor had actually grown from the last time they saw it three months ago. And, and that was not good news, but that he was prepared and this change did not change the course uh, of action for the day. And they had the best instruments in place, the best machines in place, and he was ready. And then you know what he did? As he closed his time with us before he went to do the surgery, he asked us to pray with him. You know, there's a beautiful picture in life that while God is in charge, he calls us to depend on him and he calls us to pray. We do the best we can getting the best specialists and the best instruments and the best medicine. Isaiah said, go and make this medicine and bring it to King Hezekiah. The promise was already given that God said, you will live. So they could have just said, ah, oh, you're going to live. You don't need medicine. But no, there's this unique and beautiful relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, for those of you that know, the surgery went great uh, as planned. They were able to get 90% of the tumor out. Jaylene was, was in recovery and began to wake up and joke with their mom and dad. That's uh, a whole story for another time. But we're so grateful for God's hands in Jaylene's 
healing and for the specialists who were there to perform the work that needed to be performed. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Many times what can happen is we can get into this mindset that if God's got this, then why do we need to post a guard? If God's got this, then we don't need to do anything. At the same time, we'll sometimes get the idea that, well, you know, if God has this and we post a guard, then that must show that we don't have faith in our God. Neither of those approaches are right. We are called to trust in God while at the same time doing what we're responsible to do. In Acts 27, we have another picture of, of, of God's divine sovereignty and and man's human responsibility. And uh, you've got the story where Paul has been arrested. He's on a boat being taken to Rome. Uh, on this boat, there are the soldiers uh, and the guards who arrested him and, and the sailors as well. And the storm begins to rage and people are freaking out. They've come to Paul and they've begged Paul, you know, you say you're this God man, beg to your God for the, for the salvation of our lives. And, and so Paul is praying and in the midst of that prayer, an angel comes to Paul and says, you know what? I want you to not fear. No one is going to die. The ship is going to be lost, but you're all going to be okay. And so Paul relays that message to, to everyone. But, but the storm, it continues to rage and the sailors are beginning to freak out. And Paul gets word that they like sneak around back and they begin to lower lifeboats. And he, Paul had just said, no one is going to die. And so you know what that means? No one is going to die. There's no reason to freak out. And according to Deuteronomy 18, if a prophet is a prophet of God and speaks for God, everything that prophet uh, says is going to come true. And if it doesn't, then kill him. And, and Paul has demonstrated that he is a prophet of God. So, so Paul should be hearing about this and saying, you know what? If they're lowering down the life lifeboats, that's fine. I mean... God's already said no one's going to die, so let's go snorkeling. Do whatever you want. Let the lifeboats down or not. But that's not what Paul says. Paul actually says in verse 31, um, he, he says this, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Unless they stay in the ship, we will die. He just said they weren't going to die, that God... So, so what's going on here? What's going on here? Two, two authors, J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and Don Carson uh, in his book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, both come to pointing us to this unique, beautiful chemistry of, of God's divinity, God's divine sovereignty, and human responsibility, and how they all come together at the cross. You see, Peter's very first sermon in the book of Acts, um, as the Holy Spirit comes, and, and, and Jesus had just told them that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Paul, Peter's very first sermon to those who are there is, Jesus was crucified for your sins, based on on the, the ordained plan of God, Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice 
And in the same sermon, in the same thought, he looks at those men who were standing there, many of which who were present and calling for Jesus to be crucified, while it was God's ordained plan for Jesus to be sacrificed, it is because of your wicked hands, those of you who sacrificed him. So you have this beautiful God-ordained purpose, and yet these men being held responsible for the wicked act that came of their hands and sacrificing the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Bible tells us clearly that what we do matters. And, and, and yet God is working behind the scenes to unfold his all-loving, ever-perfect plan throughout all history. And yet what we do matters and what we do we will be held responsible for. On one hand, God is completely in charge, but on the other hand, what we do still matters. And so intellectually, this can be a hard thing to really grasp. It, it logically doesn't make sense if somehow God has an ultimate plan and his ultimate plan depends on man's actions. How is that? How is God ultimate? How does, this, how does this add up? What is unique here is that there is a divine, mysterious, beautiful thing about who God is and how his work unfolds. You know, we don't always understand. Paul says right now we see dimly, but then we will see face to face. There will come a time as we are brought into Christ's likeness and in his presence, when we will fully understand and grasp the deep mysteries of the word. But right now, we're called to live by faith and to live in obedience and understanding that there is a beautiful chemistry at work in God's divine plan and his sovereignty unfolding through us being obedient to his commands and call on our life. The Bible clearly teaches that what we do matter and that we are ultimately responsible for our actions. But at the same time, there should be encouragement in knowing that even though we are, our faith may fail at times and that we may mess things up, that God is ultimately in control and works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his, his name. And so... Let us not sit back and not trust, I mean, and not do because we think that we just have a God who would take care of everything. But at the same time, let us not just be all about trying to do everything on our own because we're not sure God will come through. How beautiful chemistry. Number two, the second thing we see from this passage is that it almost seems to be a principle throughout the whole of Scripture that whenever the great work of God is being done, there is some kind of opposition or attack that comes up against it. Jesus himself, um, at the age of 30, being baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, and John the Baptist declaring, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Holy Spirit coming from heaven, the voice of God declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is now anointed and appointed, made clearly known that he is the Messiah, the Savior to bring salvation to the world. And the very next day he is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and deals with 40 days of temptation. This is the Christian life. Being called, anointed, and appointed by God and facing opposition through our own desires, through our own temptations from outside forces, there's this constant dilemma. If you look at great heroes of history through in the Bible, you see people like Elijah who had this amazing triumph on the top of Mount Carmel as he battled the prophets of Baal, having seen the powerful hand of God unfold and won against 450. And although he had seen God's great victory, the very next moment, he's falling into one of the deepest depressions of his life and just wanting to be done with it all. Many times, when we're going about the work of God, seeing the great things of God, we will come up against opposition. We will come up against attack. You see, we have to continue to remind ourselves that there are forces in the unseen realms. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us there are powers and principalities in the dark air who do not want God's plan to unfold. And so they will do all they can to stir us up to battle against each other. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, there were even their own people coming up and saying, but what about this problem? And what about this problem? And while we're working, they're going to sneak up on us. And before we even see them, they're going to kill us. And what are we going to do about all of this? And, and yet Nehemiah says, God will fight for us. Now here's your weapon. So what do we do? What do we do? Um, and, and, and why does this opposition have to come? So why? Why did this opposition have to come? Number one, the Bible clearly tells us that if we identify with Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. Let me just remind us of our favorite beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Jesus tells us, uh, again, we're reminded in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, mockery, and disdain. It, it, it exists almost from cover to cover, where the powers and forces against the goodness of God will continue to mock and ridicule and persecution will come our way. We are promised that we will suffer. Christ said, as I suffered, you too will suffer, but don't lose heart. I have overcome the world. You know, what's interesting is when you look at a lot of the world's main religions, you have these religious leaders who lived fairly prosperous and long lives, Confucius, um, Buddha, 
several others, these religious leaders who, who were fairly victorious and triumphal in their, in their ways and, and developing their teachings and their religions. And yet you look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was killed at the age of 33. His life cut short him dying in shame. What is this about? What is this about? What do we do when this happens? What do we do when the persecution comes? And, you know, I have to believe that ultimately, as I've already said, ultimately, as I've already said, we have, we have one who is true, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who came and conquered sin and death and in victory rose again for us. And we have the, the ultimate enemy, the, Satan and his, his demons, who's doing everything he can to stop the plans of God. And that's why Jesus said, as I suffered, you too will suffer. And so what do we do? What do we do when, when we face this kind of persecution? Knowing it's going to come, how do we handle it? Well, let me tell us, first of all, what we don't do. We don't do this. Look at verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. You know, they were hearing the jeers and the mockery and the disdain. And so their prayer and their, their cry out to God was, Hear us. Turn back their taunts on their own heads. Give them to be punished in a land where they are captive. Uh, do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That is not what we are to do. So how, do, how are we to take that passage of Scripture? You know, Derek Kidner is a great commentator, and he's written a great commentary in the book of Nehemiah, as well as the Psalms. And he has this whole section on the, uh, these kinds of prayers and the impregnatory um, uh, Psalms, where there are, there are cries against injustice. I'm reminded of Psalm 137 that said, O Lord, uh, do to the Babylonians what they have done to us. You know, the Babylonians were known for being wicked and murderous and barbaric, and they would go into towns and villages raping and pillaging and destroying and taking the small children and killing them by throwing them off uh, mountains and, and seeing their bodies crushed and, 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 and pain and agony and crying out towards injustice. The people of God are writing these prayers to God, lifting them up, saying, God, have your vengeance. Do to them what they are doing to others. And they, there's actually the, the verse in Psalm 137 that blessed is he who crushes their children against the rocks. What do, we, what do we do with that? There are three things for us to be reminded of. Um, Derek Hidner points out that number one, we need to see these as cries. These are, these are, these are shouts of of pain. These are cries of, of, of pleading with the God for, for vengeance. And, and, and we should still cry out against injustice. There are atrocities and terrible things happening in our world that God has called us to, to rise up against. And we need to call up, uh, rise up and call out to him asking for justice to be done. In almost all of these prayers, the second thing we need to see, they're asking God to have vengeance and not for them to take vengeance of their own. 
God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so let us, let us cry out to God on behalf of the injustice, but let us turn our hearts to asking him to have his will unfold and him to take care of it. And then the next thing we need to realize is that on this side of the cross, things are different. Why? Because God had his own little one's head crushed. God offering up Jesus. Jesus was the one ultimately despised and stricken and rejected and crucified in our place. He was crushed. He was despised. He was stricken so that we can have a name above all names. So that Jesus' name would be given to us. So that his death in our place would be him exchanging his righteous life for our life of sin and brokenness. So that we could have a name that will never die. The third thing we need to be reminded is that we can't be truly despised. Not in the long run. Because our names are now written in heaven. Because Christ took our place, the, 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 the despisement, the rejection was, was taken upon himself in exchange. He has given us a place. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, if in your life you take a few hits, if you take a hit to your reputation, or if you suffer persecution... Think of what I did for you. I have overcome the world. And you can handle it. You can do it. As I suffered, you too will suffer. But don't lose heart. I have overcome the world. And I will be with you until the end of the age. I took all the shame. I took all the rejection that you deserved. I took your place on the cross so that now you can have a name written in heaven and be a part of the greatest city ever. You are now a citizen, not of this earth, but of the kingdom of heaven. And you are surrounded by the ultimate walls, the walls of salvation. And you can't lose or you can't be lost because you're mine. You're mine. I did all of this for you. And you can handle it. So get out in the world. And if there's opposition, and if there's oppression, and if there's attacks, you can handle it. So, so be bold. Go out and speak for me. And do my work. And even if there is opposition, don't lose heart. For I have overcome the world. Do my work. And when you get despised, don't hang your head down in shame for those who look to me will never be put to shame. So this is the message of Nehemiah chapter four that we need to realize there is a mission and a plan of God. There is uh, an understanding that we have to put our hope and trust in him and his sovereignty. At the same time, we need to take up our sword and to lift up our prayers and get ready for God to fight our battles. And the second thing we need to realize is that even when opposition comes, ultimately God has already won the battle. 
and it is he that is working in us and through us for the salvation of the world. So where are you today? Do you know this God? Do you know the one, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world? Have you put your hope and trust in him? He is here to love you, to lead you. He has an ultimate plan for your life that he wants to lead you through. All you have to do is put your hope and trust in him. And when dark times come, when opposition comes, don't lose heart because he loves you and he already fought the fight on the cross by dying in our place. And even though we may suffer for a time, in the end, we are his children forever. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we are made citizens of his family, of his nation, of his kingdom. And if you have never put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you can do so right now. The Bible says it this simply. If you believe that he loves you and that when he died on the cross, he died for you. If you confess with your mouth that you want him to be your Lord, then you will be saved. He gave you the right to become children of God simply by believing in his name. If you want to do that today, pray with me right now. Father God, come into our life. Forgive us for the ways that we continue to try to live life on our own. Help us to die to ourselves and die to our own selfish desires and instead put our hope and trust and our faith in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us and taking our sin, our shame, the despisement and the rejection of this world, taking it upon yourself and victoriously in death, you conquered sin and death and, and you rose again, giving us life. So God, thank you for giving up your life through your son, Jesus Christ. Now I give you mine. Come in and make me new. Teach me what it means to follow you. In your name we pray, amen. So we have a God who is divinely and ultimately in charge of everything. At the same time, he invites us into his work to do the things that we are to do. So let us obey his commands. Let us give towards his mission. Let us work hard at building the walls of the mission and sharing our faith out with those and who do not yet know him and let us join together to see God's mighty work unfold in the land where he has planted us. I love you. I can't wait to see you soon in person on our property. If you want to know more about our property, check out our website. Things are coming together and I can't wait to see you soon there. We love you. Have a great week.